0: And welcome. You're listening to the Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as the podcast, which may or may not be bringing to you via our satellite in low orbit. Uh, I am your host, Saren <laughs> Kester, and uh, I'm actually just going to be sort of getting you off here today. We have a number of guests, and I'm, I'm going to take a back seat. Uh, let me just let you know a little bit about some of the topics that are going to be coming up later in the show, and then we actually are going to be starting off strong today with a with a live interview, which is always fabulous. So coming up later in the program, we're gonna Going to be talking a little bit about Indonesian uh, fisheries, and we have some news about farmers. We have some Supreme Court news, and the U.S. military. Nice roundabout, all as well. Those are all things Dave's going to be telling you about a little bit in later in the program. But right now, I'm going to throw to Stefan, who is going to introduce our special guests. And interview them now.
1: Yes, thank you so much, and uh, welcome to the show, everyone. I uh, it is it is so rare that we have of a, a packed studio. I feel like it's always a it's always a treat. Uh, and so, uh, of course, we're joined uh, as usual with uh, by Dave Hostetter, uh, as well as uh, Deirdre Leonita. Um, you we, uh, we were on the show for a year and I still have not successfully said your name correctly. Um, good. but, uh, but, uh, but yes, back, uh, back again for like, I feel like you've come back like once or twice a year now, uh, whenever you're in town to come say hi. Yeah. Um, and we're talking actually about why, why you left us, um, which is <laughs> we're for an incredible opportunity, um, uh, to make a, to make a, to make a documentary, to make a documentary that is uh that we've talked about at least once or twice on the show in production but it's uh, it's finally about to come out quite soon um and so because of that we're also joined uh by by the the show's director um which uh which is very exciting um, and, and so we're new here is we're going to talk about, uh, basically the, sh- the show itself, uh, the movie, how the making of, and all these sort of things like that. Um, and yeah, we're just very excited. Uh, so of course, so that, so to, to round out, um, we are also, um, joined, uh, by Ian McAllister, uh, who is with Pacific Wild and also the documentarian, uh, of this, of the great bear rainforest. Um, and so... I want to start off with uh, sort of the most the most obvious question I had after seeing some of the previews and everything like that, which was in in, in hearing you actually speak, uh, was was about you've been in the Great Bear Rainforest for for thirty years. You sort of have grown up in this in this area to some extent, um, or at least you spent a certain amount of time in there. Um, and I'm curious to know what um, what what drew you to the space and sort of what made you like it, it took you twenty years almost to make this film. So like, so what <laughs> brought you to this this moment? <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, well, we were in uh, really working on the film uh, intensively over the last three years, but it's certainly been a, a longer-term dream to do a, a giant screen or IMAX uh, film on the Great Bear Rainforest. And the main reason for that is I was fortunate to be introduced to uh, the region, which is really half of the North Pacific coast of Canada. It's a, you know really a massive a massive coastline. There's over a thousand uninhabited islands. There's uh, it's about seven million hectares in size. It's comprised of the Coast Mountain Range and fjords and islands and inlets and and uh, you know the equivalent size of seven million hectares is about seventeen million football fields. So it's a it's just a an incredible um, wildlife paradise that uh, uh, has has been really hidden from so much of the industrialization that has um, wreaked havoc upon so much of the rest of North America. And I was fortunate as a young person to be introduced to it. We were on a research expedition on a boat uh, to go and look at uh, the state of the rainforest in the area. And this is in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, having come from a background on Vancouver Island where, you know, the the forest had been treated so brutally, you know, 80% of them, had been logged at that point and that was sort of my background and university and whatnot was it was um, rainforest activism trying to protect the forests of Vancouver Island and so having that as a background and then going north and seeing the Great Bear rainforest for the first time uh, there was really no turning back it was just Hmm. so awe-inspiring and life-changing that it just became uh, a life's passion and so uh yeah we've been engaged in a lot of research a lot of conservation work a lot of advocacy uh, community development you know whatever whatever tools would work towards protecting the region and but yet one of the real cornerstones of our work has always been visual storytelling and that part of it um you know has involved documentaries and books and you know showing people what the place looked like to help inspire protection and more conservation Um, but in the back of my mind Doing a giant screen or IMAX film was always something that seemed so appropriate for a place, so beautiful, and that. Dream took a long time to get to where we are today, where it's actually um, being released in theaters around the world on February fifteenth.
1: Yeah, that's that's it's, it's amazing, and in this the scale of the IMAX, really, it does seem. I remember talking to actually to you, Deirdre, about um, maybe a year ago about how different it was to how edit a film on IMAX because you can't because you can't see it all. It, you don't. It's hard to experience what it even looks like um, when it's when the screen is so huge that you know on your own computer screen it doesn't actually match um and so to to sort of take on that task is is obviously monumental and so i'm curious what uh what about imax made you think it was the the right venue for this kind of uh you know documentary uh excuse me uh
2: just the the size of the screen you know six story high screen and 12 channel surround sound it's as close as you can get to being there in in person Mm.
1: And the man, the, the rainfall effect, I think, was is, is always this sort of thing that you you don't realize how important surround sound is until you hear rain, and you're like, oh it, wow, it feels like I'm actually there. Um, but um, uh, but so I'm kind of so I'm a, I'm a bit of a one of the things I just like hearing about in in the store settings is sort of. Obviously, you know what you what gets gets what's what gets made is 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 a is a forty two minute documentary documentary. But there's all of these stories that are sort of behind the scenes and sort of the experience that you, I'm sure you had that you sort of you know like there was that one there's a shot that is overhead looking down on the ducks who are who are diving down to to get, uh, to get things, and that scene to me I could have watched that forever. Just the scene of the of the thousands of ducks, uh, you know, diving under underwater to, to get the, um, it's a fish, one of the fish's eggs. Um, and, and so I'm curious if there were moments like that for you, moments like that where you're sort of like, I can't believe I'm seeing this, I can't believe I'm doing this. And I'll go to both of you, whichever one you want goes first, and then the other one go afterwards.
3: Um, well, just while watching the film for the first time on the dome, um, you're kind of taken over by the emotions of each scene, but not but not because of the film, but for me at least it's it's because of the emotions I was feeling on each particular day. And that was a great day with the surf scoters. Um, we had spent we had spent three seasons um, trying to capture at the herring season and um, that that particular shot was taken on a really great Day on the last season that we had for the IMAX. And um, I'm sure Ian can talk a little bit about that experience because he he filmed the whole sequence and and he, it's pretty close to his heart.
2: Yeah and Stefan, we don't call them ducks. They're surf schools.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: betray my ignorance. <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: well that that was a hard fought sequence and it was, you know, it was kind of the nature of the the IMAX film was, you know, we'd get these We'd get some great opportunities and you know, this is a, a film of wild, of a wild landscape, of wild animals, of real people, you know, we, these weren't actors, there, there was nothing really scripted other than we wanted to make a beautiful place, uh, a beautiful film about a place and um, with the herring season, you know, the herring come in en masse, uh, in mass in this early spring and spawn on the shoreline and Thousands, actually tens of thousands of surf scoters time their migration north to their nesting grounds to coincide with when the herring lay their eggs on the shore. It's an incredible timing, um, uh, timed event, because there's only about a 10 day window where this happens. And so this has evolved over countless generations of surf scoters, and we thought, what a great opportunity to include that into the herring sequence. And so it seemed like it would be pretty simple to when you have 10,000 surf scoters all diving together. Mm That it would be pretty easy to film that and we you know we filmed it from the air um and i think that's you've seen maybe some pre-clips of that and yeah. and it is mesmerizing you know when we filmed that uh that uh, and there really was over ten thousand surf scoters all together and they're all diving en masse and they do everything together nobody there's no individuals when you're a surf scoter and i remember when we um Shot that uh, sequence that day. Um, we got back to the boat that night, and we, the whole crew, we, we actually just played that. Uh, we had about an hour of that footage, and we just played it over <laughs> and over to like six in the morning. And we thought we it was like being on hallucinogens. It uh, was I can, it was amazing. I can
1: only I, honestly, my actual thought was, I, if I could just see yeah. that forever, I would. Yeah. And So the fact that you have an hour of that footage, like, can you release a second documentary, which is just an hour yeah. of this? Yeah. No,
2: it's we're gonna that. release a screensaver. Lots of, of screensavers. It. <laughs>
1: It's is, it is yeah. such an incredible shot, um, and 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 yes, and it, it's what's what's uh, I think that what you mentioned there with with the fact that these are not actors is such a such a funny little little fact. I, mean, you, I don't think you totally realize how how much of this I imagine is sort of just hoping to be in the right place. Um, um, I, I was I'm wondering. In terms of, I've
4: discovered what with these new technologies for these na- nature documentaries, you're really able to get uh, a sense of the personality of the different creatures involved and a, re- and a real sense of the community of the species. I'm wondering, when you guys were filming there for so long on your boats and so forth, living with the animals, did you get a real uh, sense of the community of different beings and how they interacted?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's such a great way to describe... Um, uh you know what we were trying to document on the coast because you know everything really is a community and there is culture within all these species and there's societies within all of them and and they're all interconnected you know and to think that like wolves are you know an important part of of our not only our research but um our understanding of the coast and you know when you look at these extended families that um live together in these packed structures and and, uh, you know, you start to really document the lives of wolves, you realize how similar they are to how we organize our own societies, our own family structures. And, you know, the similarities are uncanny. So, so, you know, um, you know, culture and society, uh, all of those things are, are, are very much at the heart of, I think, what we were trying to describe in this film through, the lives of many different species in, in the great bear rainforest beautiful
1: yeah and, and and obviously this was you know this the the, the amount of time i know that that you did spent uh on a boat uh was i think dramatically more than you'd imagine for a you know for a you know it's called the great bear rainforest you imagine it's a forest but uh clearly this is uh this is an interactive um ecosystem with not just the forest but also the ocean um and so like what was your sort of experience Udyrda, um, a the just the experience of being on a boat for was it months I imagine, yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then sort of how is that interplay uh, sort of work?
3: Yeah, um, yeah. The Great Bear Rainforest. I never thought of it that way, but I guess when you hear rainforest, you you think of uh, kind of terrestrial region. But the really special place about the Great Bear Rainforest is that it's. The perfect combination of the ocean and the rainforest, and the interaction between the two, is what makes it special, and that's what makes the ecosystem so unique. Um, so I was thrown three years ago, almost I was thrown into that environment, um, you know, from the streets of toronto and uh i was put on a boat and it was a pretty big learning curve um and i was lucky that ian had enough patience for me to learn some of the skills on the water that i needed to 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 do this but uh since then i've spent probably i mean our crew spent over 400 days um on the water uh filming the majority of the film from boats and um and that was pretty special and unique for a film project, um, and the technology that we had on board actually made that possible for IMAX. Um, but it was it was a long time on board uh, for all crew members, and we developed some great some great bonds, and and we had some good times. We had some some rougher times and it was all an adventure.
2: So many rougher times.
1: <laughs> well, I, I imagine a small crew on a boat for 400 days doesn't seem like it would be the, uh, the, the easiest of experiences, as we're sure, especially if you're chasing shots all the time. <laughs> um, do, do you have any, any, any sort of, anything that sticks out to you as sort of one of the, what, maybe more triumphant moments from after chasing a shot or, or perhaps did you survive a, uh, a storm of some nature?
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, all of that—that's for sure. I think uh, I think we actually had you know a lot of our a lot of the underwater images in the film and uh, are um, taken in the middle of the winter because that's when the water is the clearest. There's not as much plankton and and just living stuff in the water, so the visibility is really clear and um, it makes for the best filming of course but it also makes for the most uh, uh, challenging weather and we had uh, at least five or six separate um, hurricane force events while we're um, filming on the outer coast and uh, there was one where it, it uh, in the middle of the night, it came up and and uh, got up to a storm force, but in a, a serious blizzard. And so, you know, our radars and chart plotters and everything was were just absolutely um, uh, unworkable. And we had to get the anchor up, but we were being pushed into this cliff with, you know, about three or four meter swells. and. And it was pretty touch and go I, I couldn't leave the helm i had to keep the boat pointed into the into the blizzard and we couldn't see anything and there was just like inches of snow just accumulating every minute on the deck and mm-hmm. and the windless breaker the fuse breaker kept tripping and the only way to untrip it was to get uh, up forward um, but deirdre and our other deckhand haley uh, we're still in their pajamas, uh, like on the front of the boat in this freezing cold blizzard in the middle of the night, and like about 50 knots of wind, <laughs> in their pajamas trying to get this anchor up, and that went on for quite a while. So it was quite a uh, quite a sight, but we managed to get out of there and get to the next uh, uh, storm disaster. Or so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: just make it from one to the next. Yeah, yeah that was fun. What were you, what were you thinking during that moment? Given that you guys, yeah. it's so rare
3: I get to hear. Them, I guess, and get uh, how did that go for you? Uh, I mean, you don't really have time to think in moments like that because, for some reason, most of the time it happens in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> and you know, Ian's pretty calm, so we kind of we kind of take our our direction from him and how he's reacting to a situation. And luckily, he's the type of person who kind of stays calm no matter. How crazy things get! I swear
2: Uh, in my head a lot. (laughs) Oh right, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs)
3: But but Haley and I um, were—I don't know. You just kind of jump to what you're supposed to be doing, and um, and think about it afterwards when when you're kind of. (laughs) booming away from from that and that like, area.
1: When you've just gotten through it, yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe the next day where you're like, oh my.
3: <laughs> the next day was beautiful. Oh, there you go.
2: Yeah, the sun came out and there was like, you know, a foot of snow on the deck and we're like, geez, did that just happen?
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. And, and that's like, uh, uh, that's is the, the I, I kind of want you guys to make a making of documentary as well now mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that some version of at least some information will come out um but uh, but I, well, the one question I want to make sure I, I sneak in here before we sort of get to music break there's a couple actually at least two questions before we get to music break <laughs> um uh, the first is, is is what makes you the most proud about this film what is the what is the part of the film mm-hmm. that you're most proud about and it's for both of you but whichever one you can start
3: I think you should start. Ian. No, you should definitely. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I obviously haven't spent as much time on this coast as Ian has, but um, you know, forty-two minutes is a very short amount of time to cover, you know, the hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. or thousands of miles of that coastline, and and we covered. The we our characters are from three different nations within the Great Bear Rainforest region, and um, just to be able to touch on the initiatives that these nations are taking to protect their environment, um, as well as the diversity of the region, as well as you know all the other themes that are in the film. I think I think the film opens up a lot of different discussions about. The environment, about you know, First Nations sovereignty um, and stewardship, and um, about you know marine protection, about terrestrial protection, about the interaction between the two. I think, I think the fact that we've opened it up to so many different topics is something that you know we can be proud of um, because it allows for discussion um, for years to come.
2: And uh, you, Ian? Yeah, no. I think that's a, a really good point. And you know, in a in such a short format, although it's a massive screen, it's a it's a short film. It you know, I think our greatest hope for it is that it is part of a conversation about a really special place where uh, there's very fiercely independent uh, indigenous people fighting for their way of life and for their territories and. And if this, you know, hopes if, if this film is a is a catalyst or a platform for those conversations about how we, um, you know, maintain something that has been evolving for so many thousands of years and and really take steps to protect it as it should be, um, then uh, I think our, you know that's the best we can hope for in something like this. So it's it's mainly it's 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 hopefully. Um, a film that inspires, perhaps educates, um, but but mostly uh, motivates people to want to do something to to further protect it.
1: Yeah, there's something about. Uh, I remember I saw. I, I was I was I was talking to to Dave a couple days ago about the IMAX format uh, related to, to documentaries, and I and I think it really does lend itself to nature documentaries I, I i still remember when i was i think 12 i went to the interior science center and saw one about wolves and i still remember <laughs> this this documentary about wolves in part because of the fact you know that they was the, the experience was so overwhelming
2: yeah oh yeah i mean we just saw a uh, you know this film is just coming out in a couple of days and um we just saw a preview of uh, the first film output and we're uh, sitting in the theater and This sea lion, you know, the size of a small school bus, suddenly comes over your right hand shoulder, and it's just unbelievable. It's, uh, you know, you just feel like you're actually underwater with them. You feel like you're on a salmon creek with a spirit bear, and you're you're right beside, you know, these bubble net feeding humpback whales, and you're suddenly in the forest with the mist and the ravens, and it is an incredibly immersive uh, feeling to be in a in these uh really really beautiful imax theaters and to be surrounded by the rainforest it's uh it's as close to being there really as you can as you can get yeah it's uh it's very challenging format to make it's everything that we learned about television broadcast television you know had to be left at the door for making this film we had to really rethink um so much not just the camera technology but you know, what we did with the technology to to, to get it onto the giant screen. There's a huge learning curve for all of us. I think when Deirdre started this project, uh, um, she, I think she thought maybe she's going to end up in a studio for a few weeks and that was that. <laughs> and the next, next thing you know, she's on a boat for 400 days and hurricane force winds. Uh, But So it's been, yeah, for everyone that worked on this project from, you know, production to from post-production to being in the field to sound, everything, it's uh, just been an amazing experience and huge learning curve for a lot of us.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I wish I could have had a different show in which we could just nerd out about the amount of thinking you would have to go into the artistic direction to create (laughs) such a thing. Um, But uh, I'm hoping uh, that the two of you will stick around for the the next 20 minutes of the show. We can talk about some other stories and some other things. Um, But before we sort of move towards a more more general discussion than off the off the topic of the actual documentary i want to give you a chance to sort of let us uh let the audience know uh, when they can see it where they can see it how they can see it and uh, how they can support the work going forward
2: uh, yeah, um, the best way to, to uh, find out about the film is go to GreatBearFilms.com. Oh. That
3: is GreatBearRainforestFilm.com.
2: <laughs> yeah, go to GreatBearRainforestFilm.com
1: as I said. <laughs> exactly. No <laughs> S and the word forest. Involved. Yeah,
2: just you know, just Google a whole bunch of that. You'll find something. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. But At uh, the
1: IMAX, I'm sure, it will show up.
2: Yes, it will, and you'll see the schedule there. You know, it's being it's opening up uh, all, all around the world, across North America uh Vancouver, Victoria, uh Sudbury, Toronto, it opens February 15th and tons of venues in in uh uh the United States, Mexico, Singapore, the Europe, all over the place. And it'll start unrolling out over the next 6 months to a year as well in different locations. Um, and but you know going to that website, keeping an eye on that. Um go to pacificwild.org. We're going to be posting lots of stuff on, you know, the making of the film and uh Uh, also, you know, scheduling, um, events, all kinds of things like that. And it's also a great way to find out a bit more about the great bear rainforest, the conservation work that's going on there and, and, uh, all kinds of other information.
1: That's great. Um, so very last important question, where will I be able to download this screensaver?
2: Um, that's on Deirdre's list.
3: <laughs> it's, it's on the list. <laughs> all right, all right.
1: We will. I will. I will. Once I find out, I will let our listeners know. Um, it's a priority. Uh, excellent. This is very good news for me. Um, well, th- uh, thank you, Ian. Uh, thank you, Deirdre. Uh, it is. Uh, it is sure to be an incredible show. Uh, so everyone should go check that out. We'll be back uh, here on the Green Majority in CIUT and M.5 FM in about. Uh, I'm going to say a minute and a half. Uh, but uh, Saren, what music are we got? Yeah, so just uh, really quickly, I had to check my phone
0: because I was super familiar with Ian's name, uh, and uh, uh, I wanted to know why was I so familiar with Ian's name. And uh, Ian, I wanted you to know I checked my phone, and it's because there's a fan of yours who's also a fan of ours who's been emailing me your photographs for almost 10 years. Um, So to whoever that is, you're welcome, finally.
1: And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CUT, CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our, one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or maybe uh, even on uh, on our podcast, uh, which can be found at greenmajority.ca, which is also where you can find all of these wonderful links uh, to, to Pacific Wild and, and to the show itself, uh, or to the documentary itself, I should say. Um. And so uh, we're going to switch a little bit to uh, to, to news stories, um, but but because we have some people who, because because we have so much knowledge in the room, uh, we try to tailor it towards things that are a little more uh, related to conservation and uh, and fishing specifically. Uh, so we're talking about Indonesian fisheries uh, and some actually good news. It's rare we have good news on the show, but this mm, is very some small, wonderful,
4: piece. wonderful news.
1: Yeah, until we pivot to bad news again. But uh, we've got some solid news well, for at least thirty seconds. It's good, bad. It's all good, bad. <laughs> So fish
4: populations have more than doubled over the past five years <clears throat> in Indonesia, through aggressive sustainability measures by government and private industry. Government has cracked down on illegal fishing through legislation, transparency, and blowing up confiscated boats on the open water. <laughs> and now, one of and now one of Indonesia's fisheries has attained a prestigious sustainability certification after rigorously proving the environmental efficacy of their method, which was be, which has been in place since 1975. The practice uses lines lines to catch fish one at a time rather than with large nets that have much worse impact on the ecosystem. Officially meeting the Marine Stewardship Council or MSC standard for sustainable fishing will safeguard fish stocks for the future in Indonesia and boost the local economy since some major European companies have committed to sourcing their seafood products from the sustainable fishery. The change could have a larger effect in the market since Indonesia produces the most tuna out of any country
1: in the world. It quite and I I looked up actually how much tuna it co- it is 17% of the world's tuna which is 1.12 million metric tons of tuna mm. so it is a serious amount of tuna uh that is coming out of, out of out of out of there um but um and and so uh sustainable fishing is one of those things I think uh, was was quite high on people's radar, you know, especially after what happened uh, with the with you know Canada's east coast as as the fish stocks uh, plummeted there, um, and and then I think in some ways it got sort of bumped a little bit off the environmental agenda as climate change became more more prominent. However, when you're talking about these ecosystems, uh, you know, even yesterday I uh, was chatting with uh, with with some with friends of yours, director, actually, who are creating an orca documentary, and they were sort of talking about how uh, even in in there, the the orcas are connected all the way down the ecosystem. And so, if you want to protect orcas, you have to sort of keep protecting all the way down. Um, and so, I was curious about your guys' experience with—it uh, doesn't have to be directly related to the Great Bear Rainforest, obviously—but with, you know, with fish conservation and with 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 sort of sustainable fishing.
2: Yeah, it's uh it's 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 a it's an integral part of the Great Bear Rainforest IMAX film. You know, one of the prevailing themes is about how the ocean feeds the rainforest and all of the cycles that occur there from airborne nutrients coming in from the ocean feeding the trees uh to you know these incredible forage fish that come in from the depths in the springtime and lay their eggs on the beaches and the bears come out of hibernation and walk through the forest to feast on herring eggs and wolves come out to feast on herring eggs and you know rockfish come up from the depths and humpback whales and and uh, killer whales and sea lions and dolphins and everyone comes up, comes up to feed on the herring or their eggs and there's just con- there's so many different cycles like that and so many different you know we don't have four seasons in the rainforest there's a, a new season almost every week it's uh, um, um, but herring is one of the sequences in the film that I think is you know maybe closest to um, a parallel to to what you're talking about happening in in Indonesia. Um, the, the you know herring are a small silvery forage fish, but they're perhaps more important, at least through First Nations culture over 14,000 years, um, than than even salmon uh, themselves. Uh, they're just as critically important. It's called a foundation species, and they provide life for everything. And we've been documenting the Heltzik First Nation on the central coast battle with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to try to save this fish because they've been overfished since the turn of the last century. And uh, just recently, they, they finally, through direct action, through civil disobedience, really, um, and being out there protesting on the front lines, they um, uh, convinced DFO in 2015 to stop the fishery. And starting to see a little bit of uh, return from Herring, but uh, it's certainly a, a really key sequence in the film is, you know, all of the life that depend on Herring, uh, not the least of which are the resident uh, First Nations. And, and so... Um, you know, p- by protecting herring, you're protecting countless other species that uh, depend on them.
1: Yeah, it, that, that that certainly does feel like a a sort of a, you know, this idea of foundational um, parts of ecosystems. It's something that I don't think we, you know, as Davian referenced in the first part, the, the idea that these are communities and you are taking away these little bits of, of, of communities who are a part of a much larger thing. And so you might not fully understand the scope uh, of that of that experience, I uh, know, Duda. You, you've been sort of, uh, at least at least, according to your social media. You've been posting. You've you've been paying a lot of attention to different different actions and different and different stuff on sustainable fisheries. I wonder if you sort of have any uh, any any stories from from that experience or or suggestions that people can do to sort of push Canada towards a maybe more sustainable fishing practices.
3: Yeah, I mean, Pacific Wild. This is in the heart of um, kind of a big forage fish campaign right now um, to elevate herring and other forage fish um, because in a lot of senses they're being overlooked by the government Um, and actually (laughs) this is good timing because yesterday um, fisheries and oceans canada just responded to some comments we made on their integrated fisheries management plan for pacific herring and um, they have just decided to continue with a 20% quota on Pacific Herring in the Strait of Georgia off the coast of BC. And um, this is after, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people commented saying that we should at least reduce the quota because this is, this is how they've been conducting this fishery um, for years and years. Um, and... And four out of five populations of Pacific herring have crashed on the BC coast. So this Strait of Georgia herring population is actually our last large um, population of herring that's being allowed to be fished out there. Um, so you know, given the history of the four populations crashing, um, we thought it might be time for DFO to kind of rethink their management strategy and maybe reduce the quota, at least, if not I've not closed the fishery for a little bit, um, but they have just decided to continue that fishery um, at the same quota. Um, and um, we'll be pushing over the next month t- to try to get, you know, Minister Wilkinson and and everyone else and all the MPs out there to, to kind of rethink that decision. So, um, yeah, follow us along at um, PacificWild.org. Um, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, we'll be talking about that a lot more.
4: May I ask, um, is there any discussion about the method and what you're talking about the method of the fishing or is it just
2: a quantity of fish?
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah the,
2: it, that's a good question. Um, the, it's, uh, it's, it's both, you know, the, you know, herring are amazing fish. They can spawn up to um, uh, eight or nine times within their life cycle. They'll, they'll live for over 10 years. Um, and what DFO does, and this is, you know, you mentioned the East Coast Cod Collapse, and we're kind of right there a few years before the, the collapse in the early 90s on the West Coast. Uh, DFO is in denial. They're not listening to scientists. They're not listening to First Nations. They're just continuing status quo, business as usual, mining the ocean of of whatever it can 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 fish. Um, and they've been doing it with herring for well over 100 years, and we're... We've now seen the collapse, as Deirdre mentioned, in four other major populations on the BC coast. In fact, every commercial fishery for herring um, has now been closed between San Francisco and Southeast Alaska, except for one, which is in the Salish Sea and it's the last big population of herring um, uh, just outside of Vancouver and this is of course where the um, over half the populations of Chinook salmon in the Salish Sea are now listed as endangered, it's where the resident southern resident killer whales are listed as endangered and, and by all accounts may go extinct unless we do something about it yet DFO is saying um, and the Canadian government is saying we have to do everything to protect these whales, meanwhile they're literally mining the basis of their food supply and they're going to allow over 20,000 tons of herring uh, next month to be taken out of the Salish Sea. It's a huge amount of herring. It's like the equivalent weight of a full-size BC ferry, you know, with cars and oil in it. It's an amazing uh, amount of herring. And uh, they're just gonna take it out of the ocean, uh, take it really out of the mouths of all these Chinook salmon and expect everything's gonna be fine. So it's, it's why Pacific Wild and other local conservation organizations, First Nations are so concerned about uh, the mismanagement of fisheries on the west coast, uh, not the least are this incredibly important uh, foundation species, this forage fish known as herring.
3: And what's crazy is that the government has invested, you know over one hundred and sixty million dollars um, to in this through this whales initiative to protect whales, like with a large focus on southern resident killer whales, and these killer whales eat chinook salmon. Um, and 62% of Chinook diet is herring, and they have not considered reducing this quota. Right.
2: Yeah, if if it was the Indonesian government, they would probably <laughs> immediately put a halt and a moratorium on herring if they were serious about or saving these. Bomb all the
3: confiscated well, so ships. And, so
1: this honestly, this honestly was this honestly was that there was an image to attach this to this uh, to this news story of one of those ships being being blown up, and I was and I was. It was part of their public image campaign. Right, but it it, it did it, honestly it worked for me specifically <laughs> in that in that it, it you know it, they I guess I, I was interested it in was confiscated because the image just shows them they bombed it from the sky. Um, And and to me, it sort of was like this, man, can you imagine if the Canadian government was as serious about (laughs) protecting these things that they wouldn't, you know, that this is like, even the idea that they would destroy any private property, let alone, like, (laughs) it it seems to me, seems to be beyond Mm -hmm. beyond their ability, let alone even just, you know, reducing these quotas. And it it, it does seem to be this this sense of, and what's interesting is maybe it's just that the, you know, that the Indonesian uh, government has realized that they have, that the, that they are reliant on this and so they have to to keep it sustainable Mm -hmm. but it does seem like (laughs) i was just blown away by the by the by the sheer will honestly to protect these to protect this this ecosystem yeah
2: yeah it's incredible it's it's something we've witnessed over the years you remember when you know the brazilian government was criticizing canada for its deforestation practices and and you know (laughs) we became known as you know Brazil of the North, but it was actually an insult to Brazil because they were being more progressive in protecting <laughs> their rainforest. And and when when you look at, when, you know, when, when we go to international symposiums around the marine environment, and we explain to people about the level of protection that Canada has afforded its jurisdictional waters and the types of um, fishery practices such as this herring fishery that we commit to our oceans. People are appalled. They cannot believe that this is Canada and this is happening in Canada. So we're in a way when it comes to marine conservation we are um, almost an international pariah. We're an embarrassment. We are so low on the list um, of countries that have oceanfront property in terms of how they've protected their um, oceans and then when they find out what we've done here in Canada Uh, We have a long ways to go, Um, you know, and that's partly why we included so much of the the ocean environment in this film is to, you know, again, hopefully provide a catalyst for a conversation about what we're committing to our oceans and and hope that we see some real change soon. Um, You know, the the federal liberals are on record as uh, committing to protecting uh, 10% of our ocean waters by 2020. So... Um, on the run-up to this election, this fall election, they have a long ways to go uh, to meet that target.
1: Yeah, what percentage do we have now? Do you
3: know? We're at seven point nine percent, but a lot of this is is through the creation of these marine refuges, um, which still allow a lot of industrial activity within them. And a paper just came out recently in the EU that kind of drives this example home, where fifty-six um, percent of European MPAs, Marine Protected Areas, allow trawling. Um, so there's a lot a lot of steps that need to be taken to make sure that there are at least minimum standards for these Marine Protected Areas to call them protected areas.
2: Yeah, so the, the quantity, um, but most particularly the quality of protection is so important with mm-hmm. MPAs.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I was curious about, about the sort of idea that, you know, you hear about a lot of these sort of zones. and I know that was yeah. a, Obama actually had a whole bunch of these marine protected zones. I was curious about how protected they really yeah. were.
2: Well, in the United States, there's rigorous and robust levels of protection attached to their marine conservation areas. In Canada, we just scramble at the last minute, um, draw lines around a whole bunch of areas. Um, and call them protected. Meanwhile, it's business as usual. The trawlers go right through it—midwater trawlers, bottom trawlers. Everything is business as usual through all these paper parks. And um, what we're really trying to fight for is real protection within those areas, and not just uh, not just a line around a big green area.
1: Right, yeah, and that, that, that's actually, yeah, and that's sort of that was actually what was so interesting about sort of the Indonesian's government's response was this was not just you know this was protected area. We will steal your boat and, and bomb it. <laughs> yeah, example. hell yeah, start blowing boats <laughs> up. Yeah, like, pirate government. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it, you know, it, it truly did, did send that message. Um, uh, but we should, uh, we should get to our next music break. Um, uh, so, you uh, know, I believe you are, are are leaving at this point. So, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah,
2: thanks for having uh, me.
1: And if you find yourself in uh, in, uh, in uh, Ontario again, uh, please come and hang out. <laughs>
2: Okay.
3: Yeah.
1: uh Megan, uh, what do we what do we got on our uh, next music break? Welcome back here to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, this is your host Stefan Hostetter uh, in studio with uh, with Deidre and Dave, and I believe on uh, on coming in from Ottawa is Lauren. Lauren, are you there? Yes, I am. Amazing. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks so much. Hey. Uh, so uh, we're switching gears here uh, a little a little less marine conservation and a little more land conservation. Uh, but still still related to to trying to keep our, our ecosystems uh, safe although a little this one's a little more insidious We um, remember last week uh, we covered briefly the the Supreme Court decision um, uh, between redwater and the Alberta uh, or around redwater on the Alberta um, regulatories versus just a numerous um, well one particular oil company but then generally the oil companies in, in larger uh, larger, sense on round capping oil wells um, and another great article came out of the National Observer that sort of gave us a bit of a more of a look uh, so Dave I want to throw to you and then there's one part of thing that I've been saying a bunch on the show that I want to correct because uh, this actually was quite informative for me so uh, go Dave
4: Yes. Uh, Reagan Boychek has penned a piece in the National Observer providing an in-depth look at the recent Redwater Energy decision by the Supreme Court of Canada, which reaffirmed a 1991 ruling that regulatory obligations, like the cleaning up of oil wells, have a super priority over creditors, which means that the cleanup can't be avoided in bankruptcy. Alberta's Court of Appeal had ruled in 91 that regulators uh, could pursue even the previous owners of the wells when the company's executives and shareholders didn't have the money. Since industry was able to convince the government over the following 27 years to never enforce this power, companies have been able to load off unprofitable wells to smaller and smaller companies who can't pay for the cleanup after their business goes under. The oil in Alberta outside of the oil sands is getting more expensive to extract, and the wells produce less and less every year, and the industry has drilled more and more wells without being required to fund much cleanup. So the only reason oil production in Alberta outside of the tar sands is still profitable is because companies are not being made to pay for cleanup. The power of the oil lobby in Alberta will make it difficult to implement even this more recent decision. As Boychuk writes, quote, The hour is late and the odds against the the world's richest and most powerful industry are steep. But at least the courts have have, have not taken away our most powerful tool, regulators' super priority. There are few few signs anyone in power appreciates what is at stake, but Albertans have no choice but to continue trying to make polluters pay. The consequences of failing are simply too enormous.
1: Yeah. So this. So the one thing I want to correct before before throwing to to you, Lauren, is that in in previous, uh, at least once or twice uh, on the show, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned the fact that uh, that these oil wells uh, were uh, were primarily owned by these smaller companies. Um, which, when it, the facts were presented to me, I had sort of taken that to mean that the larger companies were actually sort of better at reclamation and and that they and that they because they they had a larger they had a larger you know you know stake in in being seen as positive and the smaller ones sort of were, had less interest and so they were and so the, lar- the smaller ones sort of had that had the that was the real issue here um but this this article actually very well shows that what's actually occurred has been an offloading of responsibilities from the major oil producers to the smaller ones as a way to get around these regulations um which then sort of feeds into this conversation we had i think 6 months ago about how much cost actually is there is to re- to reclaim reclaim these lands and everything like that and so i just want to sort of frame that that you might hear around that, that that the large oil companies are the ones are not the, are responsible for these wells however this fact that they can't that they, they can sell them off and then no longer be responsible uh is is very key to that whole story uh but lauren want to throw to you on this
5: um yeah i'm really glad we're covering this story this week because honestly until until i opened up the article i think i think i'd heard about the supreme court case in passing last week and but obviously, because Twitter only allows for 280 characters, you just sort of see, it's like, oh, the Supreme Court passed this ruling. Um, yeah. What what great news. How fantastic. Sometimes things aren't terrible. And then I <laughs> moved on and I didn't think about it again. Um, but then, of course, you, you open up Reagan's article and you read through it and you're like, oh, right, of course. This is Canada. This is Alberta. Um, sometimes it, it doesn't I, I didn't actually realize that this is a Supreme Court case that had had initially been passed again um, against against the oil and gas industry back in 1991 um, and this is essentially just reaffirming that initial court ruling and that it, <laughs> it didn't really matter that the Supreme Court ruled against the oil and gas industry because because like David said for 27 years uh, they were able to convince the government not to act on on the regulation um, so, yeah, yeah, uh, I guess it, we're still sort of in the same position we always were. Just because the regulation's been passed doesn't mean it's going to be enforced because you have a government that is incredibly sensitive to the needs of the oil and gas industry and really, really sympathetic. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm skeptical that they'll ever sort of... Go against that relationship
1: oh yeah well there was actually a, another part of this uh, this larger in-depth look actually has a interesting little tidbit that they did actually solve this problem very briefly in 2001 um, when they passed a series of regulations that actually would have allowed you to pursue the previous owners if the first one went out um, mm-hmm. and then with less than a year later uh, I believe or about a year later the the oil industry was able to sort of undo uh, basically the number of the regulations that would have that would have put this issue to rest quite honestly and um, um, and, and, and and then allowed it to continue. So, yeah, I think this question of of how much can we expect uh, the regulator to actually act on this power is 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 a much bigger question than do they have this power? Um, but uh, but uh, in the room, dear dad, I, I I'm curious if there's obviously you are currently fighting some regulators uh, in in BC on on mm-hmm. on. A, on a, I'm wondering if you see sort of a similarity between uh, between this sort of how much Canadian regulators do consistently feel captured by the industry that they're being regulated. Uh, I'm not saying that they are entirely, but it, it certainly fe- they certainly give off that uh, that 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 experience.
3: Yeah yeah, it seems to be a common theme across Canada. Um, in all sectors, really, whether it's oil and gas, fisheries, um, forestry, forestry is a big one um, in BC, as you know. Um, but it it kind of makes me, it's a kind of a sad thing that we can't trust, you know, a superior court decision uh, to actually make a real difference um in policy in our behaviors and in industry behaviors and regulation um so that just hit me um, on hearing this story right now um but it it draws parallels in my mind to what's happening on the BC coast with um, with first fish farms, which is um, kind of a recent decision um, the, the the government recently, Passed, passed a piece of legislation that that would mean there there are a whole bunch of fish farms that are being kicked out of you know this area in northern Vancouver Island right now, um, but but the deadline for getting those fish farms out is you know 2023 or something, and by then um, who knows like the government may have changed. Um, and the first, you know, they're saying the first fish farms that are being kicked out are being kicked out right now. But a lot of those farms are the ones that are already like dilapidated or inactive. So there are, there are always loopholes that the government can use to try to. It's it's kind of a greenwashing technique, um, it seems, while maintaining their relationships with industry. Um, so it's definitely something that we, we need to keep looking out for. In a lot of these um, policy decisions, because you know a policy decision can be made, but how it's it, how it's enacted is a whole different ballgame, and and we need to we need to maintain public pressure until these actions are taken to to um, enforce the decisions that are made through legislation. So legislation is the first step, but. I think the public just needs to know that they they need to follow through um, after the legislation is is put in place.
1: Yeah, you you you've you touched on something there that I think we've that I've been thinking about a lot, and I think we've covered it briefly about a year and a bit ago, maybe um, around how much I don't think the the sort of establishment realizes the the sort of the question that they be that that is being posed to to the populace and to those of us who are you know to young people um, when when they can say that you're doing everything and nothing mm-hmm. changes it undermines the it undermines the the belief in the system as a whole yeah. and I, and i think that they i think that there's a misunderstanding of just how much Damage is being done uh, to the faith in the entire system when you see these things being passed, uh, or when you see these actions, when, when you see these these sort of feel good things occurring, mm-hmm. and then nothing on the ground actually changing. That's how you sort of lose this this trust.
3: Yeah, and I think uh, taking a more philosophical approach, I think it kind of it, it kind of relates to this culture of social media and you know, all of this information being fed to us at all times. Um, so people, you know, people are scrolling, scrolling. They see this headline and they're like, oh, okay, well, this decision's made. Don't have to worry about that anymore. And then they keep scrolling and thinking that this is a positive step. And it could be a positive step if they were made to follow through on it, but that doesn't always happen. And it's it's all about this headline culture and um, how people you know, see a headline, they don't read any further and they think things are fixed. Um,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think that the, the, and what leads me to the question, um, which I'm going to throw to you, Lauren, uh, as a as a as a easy plug for uh, for what's mm-hmm. coming up, um, which is when you're faced with this question, the next question, obviously, in my mind is, well, the, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, the the, the the first answer has to be to organize. Um, and so I'm just wondering, Lauren, if you know of any type of you know mass organization of young people coming up, uh, that that <laughs> might be a great call to action here.
5: You know, isn't funny you mention that, because actually there is, um, in, in the land we call Ottawa, um, on unceded Algonquin territory, uh, we, we do, uh, yeah, uh, next weekend, actually, Power Shift, Young and Rising is, um, is coming to town. It's going to be five days of uh, training and workshops and symposiums and really fantastic keynote speakers and, um, and even maybe some actions uh for young folks um and young is a very nebulous term young people that want to come together to figure out how best we can mobilize uh for for the climate um well yeah for the climate against climate change um which we think is really really important uh, especially that this is an election year and that you know we have what 11 12 years left to turn this ship around so um yeah Next weekend, Power Shift Young and Rising in Ottawa. Tickets are available online.
1: Amazing. And there's also, uh, we received a note from uh, part of the team uh, this week, actually, that there's also a bus coming from Toronto, and I'm sure, there's buses coming from other places. So if you are not in Ottawa but want to get there, they will help you get there as well. Um, we're running out of time here, so we have like one minute left, uh, and so I'm going to give that last minute to you, Deirdre, um, uh, just because uh, you, you happen to be in the studio right now, um, which is, uh, if there's if there's one thing you would want to leave uh, our audiences with uh, today uh, going forward, what would it be?
3: Oh, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I mean, well, bringing it back to this IMAX project, um, we are really hoping... To use the IMAX project as a catalyst for change. Um, so I'm just going to plug Pacific Wild um, right now where I was talking about um, how, you know, people need to be driven to to be mobilized, um, to follow through with the government on the decisions that they make. Um, and that's kind of a big thing that we're focused on is making sure our government And the B.C. government follows through on the policies and the legislation that they have put into place. Um, So um, if you're interested in marine protection or herring or salmon or coastal wolves, um, then please check us out on social media um, and at our website, pacificwild.org.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Lauren. Uh, sorry, we only have a brief a brief time. this We'll have you on more. Not next week, I imagine, because you'll be at PowerShift the week after, uh, we hope, and hear all about how it all went. Um, so check out PowerShift, Young and Rising. Check out Pacific Wild. Thank you so much. This has been The Green Majority on CIUT 8.9.5 FM. Have a wonderful green week. Everyone, we'll see you all next week.